This is The Lack with Nina Power and Benjamin Studebaker. Today we're doing a film called Bamboozled. I'll kick us off. There are some arts that don't make money except for when they do. Tap dancing falls into this category. Seek a living from tap dancing and you will most likely find yourself performing on the street. It'll buy you bread, but it won't put a solid roof over your head. In Spike Lee's Bamboozled, a tap dancer is plucked from obscurity and put into a television show. The dancer receives life-changing money, and his skills are finally appreciated by the public. But to obtain wealth and status, he must dance in blackface. His skills can be appreciated only insofar as he is willing to debase himself. It's not just the dancer. The man who wrote the show has toiled in obscurity for years. As a television writer, he has always enjoyed a higher standard of living than the dancer, but none of his shows have been picked up by the network, and if he doesn't produce something that pleases his boss soon, he will be shown the door. The writer knows his boss wants a controversial show that plays into racial stereotypes, and so he proposes the minstrel show and writes the episodes himself. It is only when the writer creates a show that debases him that he finally receives recognition at work. The dancer and the writer both struggle to convince themselves that the minstrel show is a good thing. They are both receiving enormous amounts of money and praise, and they want to believe they've earned what they're receiving. The dancer avoids reading about the history of minstrel shows. The writer speaks derisively of his father, a stand-up comedian whose integrity stood in the way of his commercial success. But as the show becomes ever more popular and successful, both the dancer and the writer struggle to get themselves to continue to participate in it. The more successful they become, the less satisfied they are. Ultimately, the dancer refuses to perform in blackface. He tries to tap dance as himself without his costume, but the audience only appreciates his tap dancing when it comes with self-abasement. As himself, he is rejected and quickly fired by the studio. The writer, for his part, has a psychotic break. His office is full of mementos from the show, and he comes to believe they are talking to him, that they are out to get him. But because this is a Spike Lee film, it doesn't end there. The dancer is kidnapped by terrorists. They allege he is a race traitor, and they execute him on a live stream. The writer is confronted by a former employee he fired. She shoots him. These extra punishments are heavy-handed and unnecessary. They make the film run out to two hours and 12 minutes. It should have been over in an hour and a half. It is clear that Spike Lee wants to suggest that many contemporary shows are akin to minstrel shows insofar as they portray black people as gangsters or as sources of comic relief. This film came out in 2000, during a period in which black actors were frequently deployed to provide comic relief in blockbuster films. Eddie Murphy performs this role in Mulan and Shrek. And there were similar concerns about gangster rap, which was often criticized in this period for turning black poverty into something consumable. But the suggestion that if people would enjoy watching Eddie Murphy play a silly dragon, they would enjoy blackface did not ring true a quarter century ago. Very few people actually went to see this film. It made just $2.5 million on a budget of $10 million. Roger Ebert pointed out that no one finds blackface funny anymore. It's so unfunny that attempts to satirize it do not succeed. Nevertheless, in recent years, some critics have insisted that Lee's equivocation isn't implausible, that if a major studio came out with a minstrel show, it would be popular, and that therefore Bamboozled must be viewed as a great work. In 2023, the film was inducted into the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. But Americans didn't find blackface funny in 2000. They don't find it funny now, and they wouldn't find it funny if studios tried to bring it back. To his credit, Spike Lee makes fun of himself in this film. The writer suggests he wants to do a minstrel show to satirize these shows, and Spike Lee has himself made this film to satirize the culture industry. In emphasizing that satire can be used as a thin cover to do the very thing you are ostensibly lampooning, Spike Lee draws attention to the possibility that his own use of blackface might ultimately be nothing more than this. This shows self-awareness, but is that self-awareness enough to protect him from this reading? Ultimately, Spike Lee paid actors to put on blackface. 
Whatever his motivations, any list of films containing blackface must include this one. A subtler film, without the blackface, could have made the same points in a more compelling way. Today we have that film in the form of American fiction. But maybe Nina sees something more in Bamboozled. Let's find out. <laughs> how, how could you possibly guess that I would? Um, I suggested this film as an interesting counterpart or pair with American fiction um, for several reasons, one of which is that this is also a film about the black middle class, um, just as American fiction is. It's about uh, black uh, professionals um, in, in, in one sense. It's to do with those uh, people working in the media um, and, uh, you know, getting ahead in particular worlds. And um, yeah, I, I think, I don't know, maybe to, to, to put that to one side for a second, I think, I think this is a very, very subversive film. I saw it when it came out. I think it's deeply punk. I think it's extremely, um, well, it's very extreme film visually and politically. And I think what is actually going on in this film, my reading of this film is that Spike Lee is writing a provocation um, to his black audience, is presenting a provocation, not to the white audience, of course, who, who are appalled by blackface. And of course, you know, everyone would be horrified by the very idea of bringing back, uh, bringing back blackface. Uh, as a side note, we know that many black actors themselves blacked up. It was minstrels, minstrelsy was not only white people in blackface; it was black people in blackface, as in this film. And I think that's an important point because what I think Spike Lee is saying is that you are responsible for your complicity and the black stereotypes that are that still dominate the idea, as you say, of black gangsterism, of um, a certain kind of even superficial kind of politically aware black uh, culture, which is represented by the Mau Maus who kidnap uh, the tap dancer the, who plays Mantan in the film, um, which was very popular. Let's not forget there was an awful lot of conscious hip hop around this time that did commercially extremely well. So you had kind of gangster rap and then you had like conscious hip hop, um, you know, people like bands like Arrested Development and uh, Living Color with a more rock uh, emphasis and uh, De La Soul and, and various outfits, some of which are very, very good, right? This is not a point about uh, their quality, but rather to say something like this, that black people, like all groups of people who've been formerly oppressed, like women, have a choice insofar as they agree or acquiesce to continue to play stereotypes. So the blackface is a comment not about a white audience, but rather about the willingness of black people to play into their own stereotypes. And I say this because um, of the Baldwin quotes at the end, which is basically a version of people, people are what they do and that we live out our, our sins insofar as we commit them, like our sins become us, right? Our decisions are who we are, right? So the, the idea that one might play a stereotype of any kind, right? Blackface is obviously extreme. We know he chose this because it's historically extreme and because it's completely unacceptable, not because he really thinks that there would be a minstrel show that would be successful. It's, it's punk in that sense that he takes it to the end, but the point is all of these other forms of stereotypes that are being rewarded in the culture as uh, you know, supposedly authentic representations. And authenticity was still a huge question at this point in the 90s and 2000s, probably coming to an end just before the social media age. But being authentic was a genuine proposition for any living human being, particularly in the culture. Right. So all of these different stereotypes, which are undercut by the portrayal of the black middle class, just as American fiction precisely uh, tells a story about a black middle class family, as well as a provocative and seemingly anti-woke provocation. It's very similar to what Spike Lee is doing by presenting, representing blackface as the most extreme example of various other forms of cultural blackface, which is why you have all of those kind of adverts for Tommy Hilfiger, which is reconfigured with the, with the N word. He portrays the, the kind of commercial and consumerist culture that is predicated on the exploitation of black 
images, images of black people, but also of, of, of black people's income, right? The idea that, you know, this is being sold to you as something desirable and you, you are wasting your money on this nonsense, right? And Tommy Hilfiger was huge at this point. I don't know if you recall, absolutely a total domination of the, I don't know, men's clothes market. It was absolutely massive and it had a huge cachet in, in black culture at this time as well. And I, so I think what it reminds me of watching it again, 24 years later, <laughs> um, it, I really, I do think it's an extraordinary film and, and I can perhaps see why it didn't uh, become successful at the time because it's hard to maybe stomach even the idea of a film about blackface, right? And the recreation of blackface, maybe it was a bit too confusing, but I think in retrospect, it's really a commentary on complicity in a culture and it's directed at a black audience. It reminds me of when Kanye West said, um, black people chose to be slaves, which is an extremely provocative and controversial thing to say. But a parallel we can see is also in Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex of All Things, where she, she talks explicitly about the fact that women chose to be in a position of historical submission um, that they went along and they acquiesced to their own exploitation because she has to explain why that was the case. Like, why did women accept their own oppression? And she says, well, they chose it, right? On some level, as an existentialist, you have to say this. Even the lack of choice is a choice, right? That they, that women participated in their own historical suppression, their own marginalization, their own, you know, brutalization in some senses. And I think Spike Lee is making a similar de Beauvoirian argument in Bamboozled. Um, and I think it's precisely because we are so used to imagining that every film is directed towards a white audience that we can't see that this is also a film or explicitly, especially a film about the complicity of black people in their own subjugation through a culture that seeks to depict them and redepict them um, uh, again in these terrible stereotypes and that's why blackface is, is used because it's an extreme extreme example of um, what we think is now over but it's not over that's Spike Lee's point I think that this precise form of playing up you know to the camera playing to a particular audience in return for often meager wages is, uh, is still a form of blackface the blackface never really ended um, and I think it's a provocation and a kind of almost like an ad admonition <laughs> against that, the perpetuation of those stereotypes, just as Simone de Beauvoir ultimately has to say that women are complicit in their own um, exploitation and oppression. Interesting. I would, you know, I, I recall it. There's a line in Hins Farage where Gandhi makes a similar argument. He says, you know, who coveted the colonizer's cloth? Uh, we we are the ones who did this, and uh, you know when Kanye made that comment about slavery, I, it immediately reminded me of that line mm -hmm. from Gandhi, and I did see a commonality in those positions. I wonder if if blackface was really necessary to make this point. Couldn't the point have been made without blackface in a way that would have been more effective and likely to garner a larger audience and more influence at the time? I think it probably could have been. But I think, but it's precisely for the reason you said that it, it's not possible to imagine blackface as such being made into popular entertainment. But the point is, it's not that everything is just as bad as blackface in, because blackface is so extreme in its kind of horror, its grotesquerie, it's because it's so on the skin. It's so, you know, the, the, the making redder of lips, the accentuating of color. I mean, you know, the idea that black is actually black as in soot or coal, you know, I mean, this is, this is to sort of confuse a, a word with, with its, its description, right? Like it's, it's taking it to an extreme, but I think, I mean, this is also it coming at the end of a whole series of subversive move, movies and, and cinema is still transgressive at this point. Like, I think we have to understand also that the nineties is still very punk and we've covered a lot of films that are very, very provocative and transgressive to greater or lesser degrees and to, with greater or lesser degrees of success. So you're, I mean, you're saying that he, you don't think that the, the film 
succeeds because maybe the blackface is too much of a too extreme, too much of a provocation. It's a distraction. It's unsubtle. But but that I think that's precisely um, why it's brilliant because it's so um, grotesque and so over the top, and you know our complicity. I think is drawn all the all the clearer, and everybody's complicity in the perpetuation of racial stereotypes, which are still forms of blackface, is the point, right? Because if we want to say something like, you know, when I don't know, gangster rappers are talking about killing people and, um, you know, bitches and hoes and cars or whatever, right? This is this is a sort of a role. It's a performance, right? It doesn't tell you anything about people's real feelings and lives and loves, right? These are these are roles that are being fulfilled in order to um, provide an audience with what they think they want. Right, but couldn't the film have just been about hip hop or about the music industry, or couldn't it have been about you know the these kinds of characters in TV or in movies? You know, in the way that American fiction is about these kinds of novels, without uh, the red herring of blackface but i yeah i think this is we're just going to disagree because i don't think it is a red herring i think it is in the way that spike lee presents it it is on a continuum and that just i understand be, that but, point yeah. i just think it's ineffective in terms of making this message reach the largest possible audience i understand what he's trying to do with it but mm. i do think that it hurt the film ultimately yeah, I, I, you know, again, I, I don't, I don't agree, and I because I think that the the tenor of the film is so aggressive and so abrasive, um, and so shocking in a way, and but that's its kind of brilliance, and and it also just reminds me of what we've lost in the last quarter century in terms of people willing to make daring cinema. You know, like I think this is an incredibly daring film. Um, and yeah, how, how how to put it, like precisely to a liberal audience, right? As well as well as a, as well as a kind of attack on black people's complicity and their own misrepresentation, it's also an attack on the precisely the kind of white liberal who would say, "Oh my gosh, isn't blackface horrible? How awful!" But then you know celebrate black culture as it's sold to them, right? As as somehow other and, you know, and that's why I think this, this thing about the black middle classes being depicted in both films is so important, right? Because that's the Well, point. in this film, the guy is a little bit of a stereotype. He puts on an absurd cadence that is clearly <laughs> a, an attempt to parody this kind of person. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 that's true, but I think it's also about... You know, yeah, a certain kind of overconformist black middle class person, right, who's gone to the right universities and code switches and and flips into being a different kind of person in a white environment, right? And the envi the environment depicted at the television station is extremely white, right? It's not a DEI friendly <laughs> office. Yeah, but there's a lack of sympathy for that character in this film. He comes off quite. Uh, I mean, the, the decision to, to kill both of the characters who acquiesced in this yes. in brutal and over-the-top ways, I think it's – and I think you're right to say that there's some existentialism running through this. There's a responsabilization going on of these two characters, the dancer yeah. and the writer, for their willingness to participate in all of this. And I, I think that – you know, I'm not an existentialist in that sense. I – think that that they're structurally pushed into this by capitalism that, that people are being pushed into this kind of stuff in lots of different respects and not just in relation to race i think a lot of people make compromises in terms of what they do at work to get money or recognition that turns their craft or their art away from its real purpose or real function to something else that's vulgar or base or venal Sure. And uh, and that's a process that happens to everybody. Why is it that the dancer and the writer have to be treated with this level of disdain? Well, I mean, also, I think for the shock value to to keep this film 
being extreme and provocative. Um, but also, I think there is a point there about choice and complicity, which is overlooked if we simply give a structural analysis of everybody's position. I mean, it's, yeah, sure, people take jobs because they need money and they might do things that they don't particularly want to do or they don't agree with, but people still have a choice, right? The point is, otherwise we wouldn't ever have people like whistleblowers. We wouldn't ever have people who resign for moral reasons. Because if the structural explanation explains everybody's acquiescence to the system, then there would be no opposition at all. We'd just say, well, you know, it's, they had to because the structure made them. Well, there's there's potential for resistance within the structure. The structure also gives rise to forms of resistance. It's not something which exclusively gives rise to complicity. But I don't think what determines whether someone is complicit or whether someone is resists is their moral quality. I think that's a function of the specific situations that they've been in in their life. But there, there must be some moral possibility. I mean, people do things for moral reasons occasionally. Right. But uh, the kinds of reasons that we act for come out of the ways and, you know, the moral values that we acquire over time, that's a social process. You know, we acquire particular views about what's valuable, particular values that we understand in particular ways through social processes. It's not like that uh, comes from outside. No, I mean, it comes from people, but then people, I mean, we're not just reducible to social ontology. Like it's not, there's not only in the end, the social, right? There are individuals who make up the social. I, I don't really think that individuals are the kind of foundational unit. I don't really think like that. So I don't go with, okay, they're individuals and yes, they deal with various structures, but ultimately it's up to them to decide what to do. I tend to think about it in reverse, that the form that individuals tend to take in a society comes out of the kind of society that they're born into. And societies don't just create one kind of individual. They do create lots of different kinds of subjects with lots of different feelings and values and positions. So a system that produces, for the most part, conformity can also produce nonconformity and, and rebellion. And that's part of what makes studying societies interesting. They're not uh, purely functionalist, Durkheim-style uh, organic calls. They have contradictions in them that are expressed in, in revolutions and rebellions and uh, other forms of resistance. Yeah, but I suppose, I mean, maybe individual is the wrong word, but there is a kind of possibility of a kind of contingency. Like, I mean, this is one of the big problems of the Enlightenment, because if natural sciences can explain everything, what room is there left for human freedom? I mean, this is like Kant's struggle in a way. I've never liked that conception of freedom. I agree that there's contingency, but I interpret contingency more in terms of randomness or luck than will. Well, I, okay. I mean, take the, I take Kant's moral philosophy. I think the point about the people doing things, <laughs> not because they want to, not because it's agreeable, not because it's the best outcome for them, but because it's the right thing to do. But you don't do, know in Do advance. we have to take Kant's moral philosophy? Why do we have to take Kant's moral philosophy? I, I'm not saying we necessarily do, but I'm, I'm saying that it, it tries to address a particular problem, which is what happens when a theory of humanity becomes too overdetermined. You know, whether, you know where, where people are saying, oh, we have an explanation for this. We can explain everybody's behavior in this way, either through naturalistic accounts, uh, you know, deterministic accounts, or through social science or materialist explanations at the economic level, right? And then we can kind of say, well, this is why, or, or even a kind of evolutionary psychological level, like people are doing this for this reason and... You know, it's this kind of reductive attempt to, I suppose, eliminate the possibility of the, I want to say random, but it's not quite random act. It's because everything is, is in, a, in, a, in a situation. The possibility of the non-predictable act. So, you know, you see someone drowning. In a split second, you decide whether to save them or not. Yeah, but I don't give people 
credit or blame for these contingent things. I don't think that it comes down to people having or not having, uh, you know, some quality to them that's external to social processes, because I think of virtue and, and uh, as something that is produced socially. I think of freedom as something that is produced socially. I don't view those things as individual qualities that are external. So no, I do I, think there's contingency, but I don't think that contingency, that virtue is what's contingent. Right. But I think in order for our sort of ontology of the human to allow for the possibility of resistance, whether individually or collectively, right, there, there almost has to be a way in which that contingency is, is like built in, right? And well, revealed. there have to be, I mean, there can be structural contradictions separate and distinct from contingency, right? You can have a structuralist account that includes the possibility of revolution, revolt, and rebellion, even without including contingency. The issue then is that you think that revolution or rebellion is necessary or inevitable, right? And contingency helps to explain why it's not inevitable, yeah. but occurs in some instances rather than others. And I think that contingency is to do with, with uh, you know, well, the fact that it's contingency means you can't really explain it theoretically. It, it can't be that's the sure. trouble with contingency. It's a black box. Sure. I mean, I think Althusser and others try to go down this route with, like, he has this idea of aleatory materialism, you know, where he's trying to draw on the kind of, on, um, I suppose, like the Spinoza's freedom within constraint, but also the the atomist's idea of the Klinemann and the Swerve and... Yeah, I think it's been a mistake to try to explain contingency. I think contingency just has to be accepted as the inexplicable yeah. thing that disrupts structural accounts. But, but okay, I wouldn't but then, accredit it to particular individuals' will or virtue because that would suggest that character formation is something which happens external to the social system. Right, but I think it is a question of where we locate it. And I I worry about this reliance or invocation of structure and the social, because they themselves also need explaining. I mean, which structures, how do they, you know, I mean, it's like when you talk about an institution, right? An institution is made up of people, <laughs> you know, it's well, like- But people are shaped by all sorts of things, right? So when we start talking about why does a, why is a person the way that they are, that's a very big and complicated question, right? It's a psychological question. It's a question about what kind of family they come from. It's a question about what kinds of social roles they've had over the course of their life and their interactions with other people who have other roles, like their parents and whether their parents perform those roles well or badly. And in, insofar as they perform those roles imperfectly, what were the imperfections and what were the effects of those imperfections, right? We could spend an enormous amount of time just drilling into why does a particular person behave the way they behave or value what they value or think the way that they think. And if we just give them credit for the fact that they have these values or we go, well, that's because you made a good choice because you used your freedom well, I think that is uh, uh, that stops us from thinking about all the rest of it. And yes, we'll never have an exhaustive account. We will never fully understand why people do what they do, because no matter how much we structurally posit, there's always stuff we can't account for. And that is what goes in that box of contingency. What what can't be accounted for? What can't be understood in theoretical terms? But I, I think we sort of missed a trick collectively when we sort of moved from the idea of conscience to an idea of the self or, um, you know, a model of freedom that isn't first and foremost moral, right? I I don't know how to put this. It's like, the, the point, I think, looking back at this film, one of the things about authenticity and about not selling out and in this in this specific instance, not repeating or replicating stere negative stereotypes is, is like authenticity was like the last vestige, very watered down of an idea of conscience in the more religious and moral sense. Because authenticity was really about saying, like you have to be yourself you but and don't sell out and you know be true to yourself except we didn't have a notion of self either right so it was either you sell out or you don't right and then what does it mean to be authentic 
we, if you without any ballast, without any moral structure. Well, I think there's a, a very effective way of getting moral structure in here that's much more robust, right? Like when I started off in my thing, I talk about how these guys are pursuing wealth and status. And because they're pursuing wealth and status, they make these compromises. What are they compromising? They're compromising value itself, right? Dancing or writing is to be done on the basis of, of the good. It's to be done for itself. But instead, it's done for wealth or for status. And that's the sense in which it's become uh, diverted. But why has it become diverted? Well, these people lack the virtue to distinguish between what's good in itself and wealth and status. They lack the ability to make that distinction. And that's because they don't have certain qualities or virtues, or they're not able to exercise freedom in no, the relevant but here, sense. Here, are, here right? I'm going to sound like you and talk about structure. I mean, if you live in a society in which those are the values and you see like white people making loads of money and offering you money, Right. You, you would think, why, why shouldn't I have some money? <laughs> well, exactly. So that's my point. They don't have these virtues yeah. because they're in a society which is not structured in such a way that it produces these virtues reliably in people. It may produce these virtues some of the time in some cases, but it doesn't produce them reliably at scale in the bulk of its people. And that's, I, you know, for me, the structural issue is that capitalism doesn't produce these qualities in people. Liberalism, liberal democracy, it doesn't mm -hmm. produce these qualities in people at scale. And so that's yeah, the sense sure. in which it's a structural issue. Okay. Well, we agree on this. But then what's interesting, it seems to me, is the fact that residually, nevertheless, despite this absence of men education, like paedia, you know, any kind of moral education, any sort of virtue, you know, nevertheless, still, sometimes people behave virtu virtuously despite the complete absence and in fact the opposite the reward you know i mean satan is the prince of this this world right the rewards for selling out are potentially huge right like we're surrounded permanently by temptation and you know all kinds of terrible things and yet sometimes still despite all lack of role models and you know recognition for behaving virtuously people still do i mean why why did Fortuna, they? Fortuna, what? Fortuna. That's just lucky. Yeah, you, know, you can't completely drive out evil any more than you can drive out goodness, right? Well, I, I agree. I agree with that. We can't eradicate any attempt to eradicate evil just ends in worse evil. We, we and know the same this. is true about attempts to eradicate the good. So capitalism is, a, you know, Gandhi calls it a satanic civilization, which is completely amoral or immoral, right? Yeah. Uh, but it can't completely drive out the good. There is still some potential in people to uh, to think about these things, even without social support. But of course, it's going to happen much less regularly and inconstantly. And if we moralize about this and just try to credit the people who happen to have these qualities rather than uh, trying to, to solve it at scale as a social problem, I think that that tends to perpetuate the thing. Because then we just say, well, some people are able to resist it. Therefore, other people should also be able to resist it. Therefore, we don't need to change it. People just need to get better at resisting it. But how okay. do they get better at resisting it? Well, we'd have to change it so that more people at scale can have this capacity to resist it. But I think this idea of moral potential, like there's something very interesting in Girard where he talks about role models and mentors. Because of our, my, my, our mimetic nature, right, the fact that we that our desire is fundamentally predicated on what other people want. And if we see, this is about making certain things high status again, this is a line that people use sometimes. But so I think actually it is important to hold up people where they have behaved in a moral fashion. I don't think it's the solution to the problem of the of capitalism, right? You're not, you're not just going to create like a moral army and defeat the forces of evil. Right. I, but but nevertheless, I suppose it's like the suffragettes have this great line where they're like courage calls to courage everywhere, which I think is very beautiful. So it's like if you see someone standing up, it will inspire courage in you. You know, that there's there's a sense in which courage is mimetic because it calls to others to behave in a courageous manner. Yeah. Role models and leaders are valuable and we do need them. Uh, you know, especially pedagogically for the young. Uh, 
But of course, we should remember that these role models and leaders don't drop out of the, the sky, that there are reasons that they are able to be role models and leaders. And what we need to do is get the things that allowed those people to become role models and leaders and to make those uh, conditions more widespread in society, more available to more people so that more people can acquire those traits at, at a okay. greater level of reliability. But what is the relationship between ideas and history, Benjamin? <laughs> this is a tiny little question I'm asking you. So take the ideas of the first wave of feminism, right, where this line, courage calls to courage everywhere, comes from. Okay, feminism in its first wave is largely about equality with men, just to be very superficial, in terms of things like political representation, so suffrage. Um, we know that many women broke the law and were punished very severely um, in multiple ways, and some died for this struggle, right, in various parts of the world. It, it, there was a kind of thing that happened, lots, quite a few more, more advanced countries around the same time. Um, and this was basically based around an idea, right? The idea of equality, right? We could say this turns up in the French Revolution as well. And you have Wollstonecraft responding to equality, fraternity, and liberté and saying, well, you, you men keep going on about equality, but you treat half the human race like rubbish. You know, what? where's the equality? And she is provocative in this way, right? She's provoking them by, by, by accusing them of hypocrisy quite correctly. And then this filters down into equality at the, the level of political representation um, a few decades later, right? These are, these are enormously powerful ideas, right? These are ideas that have historical force. The more people get to hear about them, the more they are swayed or annoyed by them, right? The more there is a reaction against them and the more there is there are people who push for it, men and women. Um, these are abstract ideas. Equality is an abstract idea. It's not real. And it's never really actually found anywhere. But it's a very powerful idea. It has enormous consequences. And it's not a structure. I suppose this is the question, right? Like, I don't think that ideas like equality, which have a normal, enormous material force, can be reduced to structure. Well, I would say, first in the case of Wollstonecraft, Wollstonecraft also talks a lot about virtue Definitely. and the need for women to have the same background conditions to acquire virtue that men have. If women are expected to have virtue, then they also need education, property, time. They need the same material conditions that men need to acquire virtue. They also need it. So I think that was a big part of the, the original story was the need for women to have a set of conditions so that they can show their, their quality. Uh, in terms of, of equality, I think one of the, one of the mistakes that modern theorists have made is in thinking that the concept of equality has, uh, or the idea of equality has necessary historical implications. And we see that kind of thought in, uh, a lot of, 20th century work in Habermas, in Robert Dahl. But I think that these concepts immediately have lots of different uh, possible implications, and they get conceptualized in lots of different conflicting ways. And often, uh, the different ways the terms are conceptualized are used to block political movements to instantiate any particular iteration. I think we've seen that very clearly with equality, where there are so many different iterations of equality now, and equity too, they all get in each other's way. Nobody agrees on what the term means. And so as a vehicle for delivering change, it's become very ineffective in recent decades. I, I, I disagree. Th I think that would actually show its power. It, you know, what a, force, what a forceful idea it is, you know, that it's manifested in all of these contradictory ways. Doesn't that demonstrate the power of the idea rather than its weakness? Well, it... it demonstrates that it's seductive. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's effective. And I think that part of what went wrong with the Enlightenment was this idea that you could just get places with ideas without having to take into account the conditions that are necessary for these ideas to be realized in particular directions, the conditions that lead people to think about these terms in the most helpful and productive ways. When you have people who are 
being debased all the time by labor and who are being denied the conditions that are necessary to acquire the virtues, when they participate in public discussion, they participate in it from positions of psychological distress or ignorance or you know, all sorts of other kinds of, of moral and spiritual weakness. And so the quality of the conversation becomes very poor. And I think with a lot of these enlightenment terms, the quality of conversation surrounding those terms now is very poor because capitalism has debased the ability of people to think in a constructive way about these terms and to come together and work together to realize any particular iteration of these terms. We have this heavily, heavily uh, torn apart culture that is siloed in all these different boxes, all these different uh, domains. We don't have people coming together to advance shared visions of equality or liberty or representation or you know, any of these terms anymore. And I think that's a consequence of thinking in, in a too idealist way about them. Sure. But I, I mean, it's sort of bigger, almost like, I don't know, conceptual, anthropological, historical questions here, which is which sounds very basic, but the, this idea of like, well, this question actually, like, where do ideas come from? I mean, are they, do they always come up like, you know, we can talk about in terms of real abstraction. So I don't know, Zon Rettel's idea that, oh, actually the idea of equality comes from the idea of exchange because human beings started using money. <laughs> and actually you, we can track ideas, the development, material the reality of ideas from uh, uh, shifts in economic processes, right? So that's one way of doing it. Yeah, the, the question about why did the Enlightenment happen? I, I think that's a fascinating question. And there's all sorts of different conditions in society that people posit when they talk about where did philosophy in the Socratic sense come from? Uh, you know, there's all sorts of interesting questions you mm. can ask about, uh, you, you can posit uh, uh, related to that. In terms of, of Athens, I think that while people often talk about money, they don't talk enough about rowing. Sure. You Go know, on. the, uh, the, the triremes, the fact mm -hmm. that Athens has this large navy and you need all these rowers to row the ships. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't, you know, Sparta's got hoplites who fight in a phalanx and you don't need too many of those mm -hmm. to have an effective phalanx. But you need a much larger number of citizens participating in the military if you're going to row triremes. And that forces Athens to include these citizens who wouldn't be able to meet the qualifications for being a hoplite. They wouldn't be able to supply themselves with the army kit and they wouldn't have enough leisure time to train to be in the physical condition necessary to be a hoplite. But those citizens can row. And so that compels Athens to politically include those citizens. And I think, of course, money would, come, would seem to come alongside that because a society that is a trireme Navy-based society will also have a lot of commercial activity. And those things will tend to go together. So it's hard to, to separate them out. Is it about money or is it about rowers, right? But those are, are two different material factors, something to do with the economy, something to do with the military and the way in which the state is constructed. And those things both have something to do with, with isonomia as a term that comes about in Athens at around that time. You know, there's uh, I think a lot of, of interesting debates that you can have, but in all of these debates, there is, I think, generally an acknowledgement that the terms don't come out of nowhere, that they do have a context that produces them and that that context has material and sociological elements to it. Uh, which ones and in what combination is always an open question. And there's you know this element of contingency where we feel like mm -hmm. we can't fully explain why this term in this particular place at this particular time. But we can theorize about it. And, and I, I think while we aren't necessarily going to have a consensus on exactly what the material cause is, I think most people do think that there are material causes for these ideas. Yeah, for sure. But I, 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 I still want to somehow almost pose, well, defend or pose another aspect of this, which is to what extent are we the same type of creature, right? Like if we talk about humanity and mankind and the way in which like, you know, at a certain point we become human, right? There's this group, historical t type of being. Uh, would on some level we be able to understand the very early humans? Like to what degree are we the same or similar enough 
to early humans uh, in the sense that, how, how to put it, like there is clearly a ground. We are ourselves material beings, right? We are, we, we participate, we, you know, we have a relation to being, we are part of nature, we're part of being, we are particular kinds of beings, um, you know, who, who have these crazy relationships between reality and ideas. And sometimes that relationship goes horribly wrong when people are paranoid or mentally ill, let's say, one kind or another, excessively anxious, you know, whatever. There's a mismatch or there's a kind of disconnect or a kind of illness there, right? So so we're we're in the world. We're, we're part of the world. We are also a particular kind of being whose origins we're not exactly sure of, but but maybe we could go back. I don't know. Would, would I be able to speak to a, a woman of my age 30,000 years ago? Like, what would, would, would we be able to communicate? So <laughs> I, I feel like, a, like I have a moderate position because I know that <laughs> I, I get into this argument in two different ways, right? Yeah. When I talk to people on the left, they say, oh, you have a transcendental notion of the good because you're a Platonist, right? right. Uh, when I talk to people on the right, they go, oh, you, you don't take enough of these concepts in terms to have transcendental significance. And it's because really the only concept <laughs> that I think is transcendental is the good itself. And right. the particular terms we use to get at it, or its manifestations, the words we use, those are, I think, imitations of it that are deviant from it. So they're all fungible and they can change and they're historically produced. But I do think that ancient people would have a notion of the good. And insofar okay. as they would have a notion of the good, you might be able to talk to them about what that means. But the particular values or abstractions or conceptualizations they would use to try to get at that could be at variance uh, from yours. But because I think there is this shared value in, in and of itself, value in and of itself without any further articulation. I think human beings have that. And I think a lot of people in the past would call that God. I call it the good to try to be more inclusive because I think people who wouldn't use the term God still have this thing, but they have it in the form of an extra O in it. Uh, I think that is human and that is mm. is universal. But the specific manifestations, I think those change all the time. And I think people disagree very sharply with one another throughout history uh, and within the same moment in different places, in different roles within society about what that concept ought to be taken to mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I like this definition of the human. So the human begins when there is an orientation or a concept of the good, orientation to the good or concept of the good. I, I would say part of being human is having this this notion of the good. I, but what it means, because as soon as you say notion, it sounds like it's more specific yeah. than it is. It's just this this sense that that we are not just alive for ourselves. Yeah. That we're not just alive for the purposes of surviving. That our goal is not just to reproduce, and it's not just to be uh, to be liked. We're not chimps in that sense. We're not just after status in the group and survival. We aspire to something, to yeah. something. So do but what I the something is, is entirely yeah, yeah, yeah. at I think, I think, um, I think orientation is a good word, right? Because it's less specific than notion. Notion is like, you know, too technical, maybe. Yeah. And this is just a function of words, right? Whatever yeah. words we might choose to get at this might seem insufficient to the listener. But I think that as soon as you start to use other words apart from the good yeah. to describe it or to try to work out what it is or what it does, you start leading away from it a bit. And that's yeah. why there's always a need to correct any particular attempt to give an account of it, because any account of it will, in shedding light on specific aspects, foreclose other aspects. Yeah. No, no, I, I like this a lot. It's kind of interesting, though, to imagine... One well, use this word, but like the evolution of humanity, is such that it becomes a creature that is oriented to the good. Like um, Bataille and others try to do this when they do their anthropology, and it's it's when the French anthropologists are kind of finding a lot of stuff quite quickly, but it's very patchy. But he he discusses the cave, very early cave paintings um, at La Chale and other places where. What he, what he describes is something like uh, an understanding of the relationship between Eros and Thanatos, 
and that this produces the desire for representation. Um, it doesn't necessarily easily fit into your idea of the good, but he himself, he's also trying to come up with this idea of like, when did we become human, right? What is it that makes us human as opposed to pre whatever pre-human forms? Yeah. Maybe don't. there's something just inherent to matter itself, which has a potential for this if organized in the right do, kind of way and think, human beings happen to be so organized. Do you think that mud could eventually become oriented towards the good? Maybe mud is already oriented towards the good. It's difficult, right? Because we can't have the consciousness of something that's not us. And uh, we can talk to other people and we can think that we might understand what's going on there in their minds through the mediating form of language, but we can't what, really what know a, for what about, sure. What about birds? I think birds are already good. I think they're not oriented towards good. They are the good. Do you know what I mean? Ooh, Animals I, kind of are the good. I, I have a hard time with birds. Birds have always struck me as, as aristocratic in a way that is, is kind of disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> I I find them very interesting for that reason. But birds have an attitude to creatures weaker than themselves that strikes me as very Nietzschean. Sometimes yeah, I find animals, it a little unnerving. Animals are all Nietzsche. <laughs> well, a lot of mammals aren't like that. A lot of mammals, you see more evidence of, of compassionate uh, behavior. I, I've never but... seen a mammal invite a different mammal home for tea and a discussion of you know, difficult ideas. Oh, but you could find those videos of one of the mammals living alongside another mammal at the zoo and feeding it and, you know, being nice to it. <laughs> you know, those are all over YouTube, the mammal being nice. Yeah. I, I saw a video just the other day of a, of a ape being nice to a parrot. Right. So the ape is feeding the parrot and yeah. the parrot, the parrot's attitude is you stupid fucker. Why are you feeding me? You're so stupid for feeding me. And it's just like amused that the ape would would waste food on it. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's its attitude is is not. And it's it's like bothering the ape and pecking at the ape. It doesn't care. It doesn't reciprocate. You know, the ape is genuinely trying to help it because it sees in it another living thing. Uh, or at least I'm projecting that onto the Yeah, that's very, uh, you're very anthropomorphizing <laughs> terribly. Well, I, I, this is the thing, like, you have to wonder with yeah. respect to everything, whether there is some potential for this just in matter because we happen to be arranged in such a way that we have it. It, it may be just in the universe itself mm -hmm. in a way where you can become more conscious of it if you're organized, if the matter's organized in some particular way. This and maybe there are ways cosmic. of organizing the matter that's... Uh, better than the way we're organized. Maybe someone could create a kind of being that has more potential for grasping at the good than we do. Mm. If they organized matter in some better way, but we're unlikely to grasp that if there is such a way. Mm. But sometimes but I, I do wonder mm -hmm. if, if there is some way that you could arrange matter that would make it more conscious than we are. Yeah, I mean, this is quite new agey, really. I think this is like very Age of Aquarius <laughs> type idea. But yeah, there is, I think, I know what you mean, but I, I don't know. I'm stuck on the human. And I, I think that there is a way in which the the material, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not a um, eliminative materialist, right? I don't think that consciousness is just an epiphenomenon of matter, right? I, I, I'm not a uh, reductive materialist in this sense. I think there is something else, whether we call it anima or soul or conscience. I, I think when we start getting into the, these questions, we're in the realm of stuff that you just can't, there's no way of adjudicating it. And you can try to adjudicate it philosophically in terms of what's consistent, but it, it seems to me that this is where we should just start to get apophatic. Yeah, maybe. But I but I think we do, not to be all like Cartesian, but we do have our, a foundation for our thought, which is our own experience of it. You know what I mean? Like, we have to start somewhere. And uh, Right, but we don't have the experience that other that things that are not us have. So if we start making claims about what things that are not us experience, we're being we're on very shaky ground. Who describe birds as aristocratic. You're the one projecting all this stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, but this is 
this is my point. We just at a certain point, once we're talking about stuff that's not us, we begin bullshitting a little bit. And (laughs) I'm prepared to say we just don't really know what it's like to be things that aren't us. So our ability to say whether other matter does or doesn't have this potential is limited. The only way that we could find out is if we were to become something other than what we are, we would have to in some way interfuse with the chair to find out if the chair has the potential for consciousness in it. We'd have to. And at that point, the chair wouldn't be a chair. It would be, uh, you know, chair Jamin. It would be me and the chair in some kind of, <laughs> yeah, it, it would be something else for me to be able to know whether the chair is conscious. The chair would have to cease to be a chair. I, I love I love uh, Chair Jamin, this, this, this monstrous fusion of, of Benjamin in his chair. But um, I suppose it's interesting when you when one is in a, a elevated state of consciousness, whether through sleeplessness or drug use <laughs> or drug abuse, you know, you, you can have these sorts of um, encounters or, or experiences of a sort of dissolved consciousness or a sort of cosmic, you know, conception of matter. And, you know, you start thinking, oh, everything is love or everything is one or whatever, um, which is great. Um, except if you're in a bad place and then everything is wrong and it becomes very yeah. Gnostic. <laughs> That's why we should suspend judgment about these questions. They're too much of a function of what kind of mood we're in yeah. you know, because we really don't know. Sure. No, I, course, I like to I mean, think of the good as, as a unity that we can't ultimately access and therefore we can only know in a, in a broken and partial kind of way. You really are and, very Platonistic. I think you're like quite Pla- Platonistian as well, whatever the word is what's the adjectival form of platonist maybe maybe neoplatonist if you oh, want yeah. to be general <laughs> yes well i know but i i like it i mean it's at least uh i don't know somehow weirdly straightforward whilst preserving what is good and interesting about humans because i speak to people who have very very negative reductive some people uh very, very nihilistic, almost, understandings of the human, right? So they would say things like, people only do things for selfish motives, you know, um, how how to put it, that the world itself isn't fair, bad people always get ahead, they're never punished for the bad things they do. It's kind of a mixture of a sort of like moral, I I don't know, like a a feeling of um, injustice, a feeling it's a bit Gnostic. It's a bit like the world is evil. Yeah. And these kinds of claims, they're too cataphatic. They they Mm. are attempts to say more than we can say about what's going on in, in places in the universe that we don't occupy. And, uh, you know, I think that really a lot went wrong with the Stoics and the skeptics mm-hmm. in the Hellenistic period who started trying to make these sweeping claims about what you can know versus what you can't. And they, they were too absolutist in both directions. And uh, Platonism precedes that and is better than that. <laughs> sure. But I, I guess someone, you know, like someone I can think of who would have this position is saying, well, this is based on my own experience, right? People let you down, people betray, you know, it, they're, it's not even a, they're not making it as a claim at this grand ontological level, even though it sort of has those implications. Like they're simply saying in their experience, life is unfair. Good people are punished. Bad people get ahead. Right. Why do they think that they can generalize from their experience in that kind of way? (laughs) Because it's their lived experience, Benjamin. And this is the only thing that matters. Anything that comes out of being is is corrupt and, and partial and incomplete. Anything that comes out of being. All of our experience is just the experience of the kind of person that we are in the time and place in which we live. And that's just one experience of many. And so anything that is a generalization from what's own experience is going to be very incomplete and flawed. Yeah, but doesn't this sort of dissatisfaction or this feeling of injustice point to precisely an unknowable or unreachable idea of justice and order, right? I mean, you might say those are different names for the good, but even a negative apprehension of the world and of other people surely depends upon a you know, like you're saying, an apophatic idea, but an ideal nevertheless, right? Yes, yes. I just think that in many cases, people are trying to distill that into too precise and specific a thing. They're being too cataphatic about it. Okay. And that's why they're overly confident or overly certain of their generalizations that they've hastily made based on their own experience. Yes, frankly, it's very annoying um, (laughs) talking to people who are relentlessly negative in this way. 
because nothing you say makes any difference, but uh, you, you keep trying. Of course, it also goes the other way. People who are relentlessly positive in this way, who claim too much in that direction, too, you know, they also can get on your nerves. Oh, for sure. I think human beings, apart from our desire for the good, are also just fundamentally extremely annoying. <laughs> well, that's a good point on which to end. So thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go do the B-side now for our Patreon listeners. Uh, have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.